Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This episode of Silent Giants is brought to you by Ali. Ali, powered by Verizon locations, are developed by Verizon, the world's leading technology company. In collaboration with Ali, a membership-only community workspace for creators. Each location is a community curated powered by the emerging technologies and thought leadership of Verizon. With Ali, Verizon is bridging the gap between startup and corporation by helping the community workspace build next-level ecosystems for entrepreneurs. And now, on to my interview with Ali Willis. So I went and I met him the next day. The group, when I walked in, was working on the hookiest intro I ever heard. I thought, please let this be what he wants me to write because it was there was no way this song wasn't massive. Yeah, yeah, check it out. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Uh, yeah. Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music, let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study they moves, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Today's special guest is Ali Willis, the songwriter behind Earth, Wind & Fire's classic song, September. Ali is also the songwriter of I'll Be There For You by the Rembrandts, which became the theme song for the hit TV show, Friends. She also co-wrote the Tony and Grammy Award-winning Broadway musical, The Color Purple. And currently a major motion picture based on the musical is being produced by Steven Spielberg, Oprah Winfrey, Quincy Jones, and Scott Sanders. In 2018, Ali was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. In this interview, she dials into the podcast to share her journey about growing up in Detroit during the height of the Motown era, getting her first job at Columbia Records as a copywriter, working under Clive Davis, meeting Janis Joplin a week before she died, the making of Earth, Wind & Fire September, the creation of the French theme song, co-writing The Color Purple, and a whole lot more. Allie is one of the most fearless and multifaceted creatives I've had the pleasure of interviewing on the show. So enough of me. Let me introduce you to the Songwriters Hall of Fame inductee, the Tony Award-winning, Grammy Award-winning, Emmy-nominated songwriter, artist, and set designer, Allie Willis. Well, Allie, how are you today? Uh, I'm I'm actually frantic today. It's um, uh, my uh, everyone. I'm in between assistants, so that's always makes it crazy for me. And my IT in this house, you know, I've got 900 terabytes in this house, so it's crazy. <laughs> um, he leaves for a week. Tomorrow's his last day. And on top of it, I was stupid enough to tell a friend they could throw a wedding at my house. Oh, yes. So, that, that, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah. No. Well, no, especially because my uh, best reputation is my uh, party throwing. And <laughs> I, I never realized that it was happening in the gap when no one was working here. So 
Um, and then I've got a trillion deadlines on uh, various projects. So I, I appreciate it, you being on the podcast. You've done some amazing yeah. things. And truly, I'm very excited just to even hear your voice and have the opportunity just to, to learn more about you and your journey. Great. All right. Well, off we go. Well, where, where did the journey start for you? Where are you um, from? Well, I mean, it, it literally started because I was born in Detroit. And it was at the time when Motown was coming up. So that had such a tremendous influence on everyone in the city. And it was at a time when Detroit, when it started, was uh, for really still thriving. You know, new cars all over the place. So it was an incredibly modern city to grow up in, very design-oriented. And then, you know, you had a city that had its own soundtrack. So I was obsessed with Motown, and I would make my parents drive me down uh, close to downtown, uh, which is where the little house that was and still is Motown. And I would just sit out on the lawn. Never made it in, but I would sit out on the lawn, and you could watch you know, the stars come in and out. Uh, but most importantly, you could hear the music leaking through the walls because... It was just such a small little place. Who who were some of the stars that you would see come? Uh, oh, come in uh, and out. The the Supremes, Martha and the Vandellas, the Four Tops, the Temptations, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye. I mean, it was it was like the biggest stars in the you know pop universe, basically. So. Um, uh, yeah, you know, so I literally to this day, despite the fact that I, uh, I write both music and lyrics and my songs have sold over 60 million records. I still do not know how to play because I was just used to hearing these parts and I go, Oh, that's a bass line, That's a drum line. That's so uh, I still hear music that way. And, you know, hopefully I'm collaborating with someone and I enjoy collaborating more than writing alone. I don't like being tortured alone. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, hopefully they, they play in a style that I'm really into. Uh, if they don't, I'm kind of dead. But, you know, I'm I hum, I bang pencils together um, once, you know, the basics are laid down, I can plunk out little arrangement parts, but I, I never could memorize more than, you know, four notes in a row, like where I hear them, but I have no idea where they occur on a keyboard, you know? Um, so it's kind of by any means necessary. I, I, I do know it's fun to write with me. I'm told that by everyone because it's like they enter a spaceship, like they have never <laughs> written with anyone who writes like me before. I want to get back a little bit into your your you know upbringing growing up first in in Detroit. Uh, when you mentioned that you were you know this little girl and you were hanging out at the Motown house in the front yard and seeing all these stars coming in and out, you know, yeah. I, I often ask you know I've, I've interviewed a lot of people who've worked you know on on major projects just like yourself, and I, I often ask them, are you aware of the moment um, or the movement that you're witnessing or a part of? Absolutely, because Motown exploded, um, and there, there could be five Motown records in the top ten at any one time. 
because they, they were literally putting out stuff every day. It's kind of like it is now more than the traditional record business. So I was very aware, especially once I graduated high school and I went to college. I mean, there was not a person um, that did not know about Motown. And I went uh, to University of Wisconsin, which was a very, um, you know, half of the kids were from Wisconsin, but the other half was from all over the world, tons of New Yorkers. So, um, uh, you know, no, I, I was totally aware at that time that I lived in the coolest place in the world. Oh, what did your parents do for a living? Um, my dad was a scrap dealer, also very influential on me, though he never liked that I picked up this habit of, you know, being around vintage things all the time, you know, things owned by other people. Mm. And um, he, it was a really large, it was about six uh, blocks long, had a little railroad running through it. So I would ride the train. It had um, stacks of these beautiful, like 1950s and 60s cars, like piled six high. And he was one of the first two people in the United States to buy the machine uh, that crushed cars into like coffee table size cubes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I would, you know, sit in that machine and push the button and like crush Cadillacs. Uh, my mom was a school teacher. Uh, she taught first grade, but she passed away when I was 14. So, um, you know, I only had limited time with her, but I absolutely adored her. Um, at what point did you want to get into music or did you know that music was going to be a part of your life as a profession? Uh, no, I did not know until the second it happened. Just always loved music, passionately listened to the radio, not albums so much. I was absolutely only into singles. And um, I, uh, but when I went to college, um, I majored in journalism. And I had a minor in advertising because mid to late 60s advertising, it, the tone of it completely changed. And all of a sudden it was this very hip, uh, humorous, um, just completely different than it had been all the way through. So I really wanted to be in advertising and being in journalism really taught me to write tightly like what's your point take no more than a few sentences to get to it and you're done so um when i graduated college someone told me that record companies because i love music i had no aspirations to write it but um they told me that record companies had advertising departments and there were more uh, record companies in new york even though i always wanted to come to la but um, so I went to New York and I got a job at the biggest record company there, uh, which was uh, I mean, it's now Sony, but it was Columbia Records and also uh, Epic Records. They were part of the same uh, thing. And um, I got at first the job as a secretary. But within a month, I was promoted 
to be a, a junior copywriter, which meant I wrote everything from like the liner notes on the back of an album to uh, mostly uh, print ads, like it, it, something would go in Rolling Stone uh, or like billboards, something like that, uh, and radio commercials. And um, they immediately put me with the minority um, uh, acts, which at that time, black and females. And, you know, that was my favorite music anyway. So, you know, I ended up um, working for all these people, you know, writing things for people, not music, but the promotion, the advertising uh, of people I just uh, died over. And that was everything from, um, oh God, Sly and the Family Stone, uh, Barbara Streisand, Bob Dylan, Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, I, I, some of those are white, but I would get to write for them if they did like albums of, um, you know, like a, like a Christmas album that include one song from each artist. You know, tell me about moving uh, to New York and tell me the story of packing your bags and, and making the move. And where did you live when you moved to the city? Um, I first lived with a cousin that was there. She was right on 14th Street. Um, near Fifth Avenue. So I was kind of right in the heart of things. Then I got an apartment with three friends from college and we moved to the Upper East Side. That I was never crazy about, but it was kind of close to where the record company was, kind of close. And then when I really settled in, which would have been about a year after I got there and my main place in New York, I was on the West Side on uh, 69th Street, uh, between um, Central Park West and Columbus, very close to Lincoln Center. So it felt like I was in a fancy neighborhood, but you know, I was living in the cheapest apartment in the fancy neighborhood. And then I was working with all these sophisticated music people. I mean, my boss was Clive Davis. That's you know who had to approve all my work. And um, And what was it like working with Clive? Uh, I, well, first of all, he was so powerful and I was this lowly copywriter. So, you know, I was afraid of him, but um, I always got along with him. And then as the years went by, it almost became like a father daughter relationship. Like our relationship is not built on me being a songwriter and him cutting my songs for the label. It's really, I'm 21. He's the big boss, and we still have that relationship to this day. But I, you know, I get along with him great. And and so at, at this time, you're still not working, you know, or thinking of yourself as an artist or as a creative no, or a person I, I was, who makes music. I was becoming more and more musically obsessed, and it was stretching me way out. Um, beyond the type of music that I listened to before, because I was strictly Motown and Top 40. Then once I got there and a lot of the artists I was working with, or just a lot of the artists who were there were more sophisticated, more um, rock, like Janis Joplin. I mean, I actually did get to work with her, but she died five days later that I did get in there. Wait, what, what, what was that like? So I only met her 
uh, one time when she came through to kind of approve everything. And then she flew back to L.A. and then dropped dead. But um, my, do you know who Laura Nero was? No, who's Laura Nero? Okay, well, look, she's in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Look look her up. Okay. Um, that's who I truly died for. And her manager was his very first client. It was his basically first thing um, pretty much out of college was David Geffen. So I would meet with Geffen. I would meet with uh, Laura Nero. Um, and there would be an art director involved. And, you know, so we, more than a lot of other artists, talk conceptually about what kind of mood she wanted things to be in. But ultimately, Clive had the say. And Laura Nero was Clive's baby. That was the artist that he protected above all other artists. So it's like she was his early Whitney Houston. Um, Also passed away young. Um, But that I knew I was in the big leagues when I got Laura Nero. Because you had to be really hip to know about her. It wasn't going to be an artist that everyone knew about. And she didn't have hit records as an artist per se. She did. But she was a very, very, very early singer-songwriter, revered among songwriters, just absolutely revered. Um, So, uh, you know, that was great. My very last job, when I decided, no, I'm jumping ahead, but I'm just going to tell you because I'll forget it. Um, When I finally quit to, because I actually got a deal on, uh, on Epic. So I had to quit because it was a conflict of interest Uh, as I was packing my stuff up, which I was very excited about because I went from being, uh, you know, the person writing about the artist to the person who was the artist and also writing the song. Um, That was uh, three years after I started. Um, And uh, I was packing up, you know, my boxes and, my boss ran in and he said, you have to do one more. We just signed this group. Uh, they're really good. This promo, it has to go in Billboard tomorrow. You have to write it. And I was, I wanted to be like out of there. It's like now I'm in this higher position, you know. Plus, I don't want to promote another artist because I'm now the artist, especially on the same label. Anyway, they brought the record in. They brought the cover in. I kind of had heard of them, but not really. But it was fate that the very last group I wrote for to become a song, in order, you know, to leave and really become a songwriter, uh, was Earth, Wind, and Fire. Wow. Yeah. So I have always looked at that. I mean, I, I look at them anyway as like this was destined from centuries back, you know. Um, but that was like, oh my God, how could, you know, I'm, I'm leaving to become a songwriter. Boom. Here's Earth, Wind and Fire. You mentioned you got this deal at, at Epic, but when when did you get introduced to becoming a songwriter and how did that Um, deal happen? Well, first of all, I didn't really know anything about it. In 1972, the biggest record of the year, uh, was called Alone Again Naturally by Gilbert O'Sullivan. And uh, biggest, it was a ballad, biggest record of the year. And um, 
I absolutely loved the song. And I was on a bus driving down Columbus Avenue, heading toward my apartment. Song would not leave my head. And I just scribbled out my own lyric to it. And which I did kind of effortlessly and was kind of shocked that everything was rhyming and phrasing the same as the song. So I, you know, I didn't know how to play. Um, but um, I had, when I got the job at the record company, I had bought a piano uh, just because all of a sudden I had a lot of music friends, people would come over and play. And um I called the only person I knew was a friend from college who I knew how to play. I knew he knew how to play piano and he had an Afro. He was white. So I thought, okay, two good stars, (laughs) you know, and just asked him if he ever, you know, did he want to be a songwriter? He said, yes. I mean, this ended up being the only song he ever wrote, but he came over and he brought the sheet music to never can say goodbye which at that point was out by uh, Barry White, not Michael Jackson. And he brought the sheet music over and he turned, we decided, so it's not going to sound like that. Let's start at the end of the song and just play the chords in sequence, but backwards. Like if the last chord in the song is a G, you're going to start on a G, you know? And I always, always, always have been able to hear a melody to anything, like anything. Uh, Like when I do write, if someone else has done the track, I don't want to hear it, like nothing. Just turn on the mic, start playing it, and off I go. So um, I just started singing a melody, and he gets to what was the first chord in the real song, and we had, you know, we had a verse, we had a chorus, we had a B section. And um, then it was just a matter of adjusting it to the lyrics that I had, even though I was singing the lyrics because I, I knew what the, I wanted the song to be. So that became my very first song. Then the next two, I figured, well, I got a piano here. Let me, you know, they don't even need to be chords. Let me just start plunking something out. And so really, um, at least for the first 10 to 15 years of my career, I would bang things out on the piano, but I never, ever could sit down and play them for anyone. Like I, I would have to kind of like go, okay, here are the notes in the chord and then put my hand on the chord, but it was enough to write with. So I wrote two more songs by myself. And I took them to my uh, my actual boss that was in between Clive and me, like the head of the advertising department. And he knew it was me. Um, he loved the songs. He said, let's take them. He thought maybe it would be easier to get on Epic than Columbia. So we took them. He took them to the um, head of Epic, who was a guy named Ron Alexenberg at that time. And not telling him who it was, because it was a conflict of interest if I was going to be doing this. So um, uh, Ron liked it. He took it to Clive, and I got a deal. So my first and only album, which was called Child Star, um, uh, was literally the first 10 songs I ever wrote. Wow. Yeah. 
And very first artist ever to hear them was Bette Midler. She was friends with a bunch of my friends. She had exploded like massive in uh, her first year was 1972. So she was the first one ever to hear the stuff. And that became like my first actual show business click. And then once I was in with her, then you start meeting artists, you start meeting um, songwriters. So um, I eventually had to quit the job um, because you couldn't, I couldn't work there promoting other artists and being an artist myself. And I actually knew I was dead because while I was still there, I would go to these weekly, um, uh, uh, you know, meetings like what albums are coming out this week, who's going to work on what. And the, the month that my album was coming out, so was the first album by Billy Joel and the first album by Bruce Springsteen. Oof. And I sat in there. It wasn't even that I thought they were incredible. I saw what their management was like. And I thought, you know, I don't really even have a manager. And these two had sharks. Billy Joel's was his wife, Bruce Springsteen, Springsteen, John Landau, who stayed with them all the way through. Wait, what, John Landau, was that his name? Whoever the producer is. And these people fought and they knew the record business and they knew like how many units and we need to be in this publication, this publication. And I, I just knew I was dead, you know. Um, so my album, it comes out. Uh, I also had never been on stage before. All I had ever been, I played a tree in a second grade play. No lines, <laughs> no movement. Yeah, nothing. No speaking, <laughs> no moving. And I was still a mess. I was so nervous on stage. I wanted to die. So I only did four performances. And the, and the first gig, they booked me in front of 10,000 people opening for a folk act and my stuff was so black and I spent all my time because I'm interested in so much more than music. All my time was spent on making the costumes, building sets. I mean, no one had sets in those days. No one, no one even had a, a sign. Like I was begging for a neon sign with a child star on it. And of course they would put no money into me whatsoever. So fourth performance, um, I, I couldn't take it. So I um, literally jumped off the front of the stage in the middle of an instrumental and walked out with the band screaming at me. And many people in my band went on to become huge. I always was able to attract like great musicians and everything and singers. So um, I was dropped. And uh, from the label, I knew that was a blessing in disguise because I just I didn't have it together as a performer. Um, and, uh, and, and at this time, did did you know that okay, I no longer want to be the the frontal talent, or did you know that I rather um, be in the behind the scenes? Well, I first of all, I never gave up on being the frontal talent. I I kept that pretty much going through the 80s, even though I was starting to do tons of other stuff. But that's still what I wanted to be. 
I just had no performing experiences, so knew it was impractical. Um, but, and I'm jumping around a little, um, in the 80s, when I got my house, because I started having all these hits, and I live in the same house that I bought in 1980, um, it was built as a party house and I was a party thrower. And I realized because I would do everything for the parties that I would have loved to have done in a live show. I do everything from design the uh, invitation. I make uh, signs. I uh, DJ. Uh, I build sets. I build like stupid costumes that people have to wear. Um, I design games, I do all this stuff. And then I am on mic the entire time of my party. Cause I don't have time to spend with individual people beyond, Hey, glad you're here. So everyone, the entire party feels like they spend the party with me because they hear every single conversation that I have, you know? So, um, I realized in around 2011 maybe that you are a performer and the secret to getting on stage is not to go up as a singer songwriter, go up as a party host. And from that moment on, um, I start, I actually started to perform and it's without question, my favorite thing to do now. You know, you made the move from, New York to LA and, and what inspired that move to move to LA? Okay. Um, so uh, the first thing I should tell you is how I got my first song cut. Cause that still happened in New York. Um, and I told you like Bette Midler was kind of like, that was my first click. She, her background group to this day is called the Harlots. And um, those were my three best friends. So um, the day I actually found out I was dropped, um, one of them, Sharon Red, who went on actually to have a big like disco career, um, she said, well, you shouldn't be alone. Come to this recording session with me. And I didn't want to go. You don't want to be at a recording session the day that you're dropped from ever recording again, you know, but, but she was adamant. And said very naively, maybe the part, you know, maybe whosoever session is will want to cut your song. I mean, it was like his stupidest, most naive way to go in there. And um, I, I, I didn't know who the session was for. I knew it was female. That's all I knew. And uh, we walked in and there was the singer. She took one look at me and literally ran over to me, dropped to the floor and started bowing at my toes. It was the one person that bought my album and it was Bonnie Raitt. You wow. Know Bonnie Raitt? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And literally, I, I mean, we barely said hi and she said, what are you doing here? Go home and write me a song. So I had no idea what Bonnie Raitt sounded like, but I knew she was a big deal. It was like a name that I was starting to hear a lot. And uh, I had one friend who used to talk about her all the time. He was a songwriter. None of us had hits, you know, or anything. So we're just songwriters. But he used to talk about Bonnie Raitt. So I called him at, at midnight 
and I, I was walking to the subway and I just said, meet me in my apartment. I need to play Bonnie Raitt some songs at noon tomorrow. And he met me there. We stayed up all night. We wrote three songs. We both um, went back to the studio because he was a phenomenal singer. Phenomenal. Like best ever. His name was David Lasley. And he's had a bunch of hits since then. And um, we sang her the song. So I got my first record that day. And what I had realized was the part of the whole thing that I loved the most doing was songwriting. Because you didn't feel uh, the pressure, you're alone in your apartment or you're with a friend. And um, it was behind the scenes, so I didn't have to worry about keeping my voice in shape or what I looked like or anything. So I figured, oh, well, now it's going to roll. Um, but of course, doesn't happen that way. So I was getting a couple songs cut a year, sometimes by a big artist, but never the single. And then I realized if I'm going to starve to death, which I was at that time, it's not going to be in the cold. I've always wanted to go to Los Angeles. And uh, I found another friend who was a comedian who wanted to move out here. And we got a car, they were called drive-away cars, where you would get someone's car that you would drive across the country for them. So it was going to be a way to transport our stuff. And as luck would have it, they gave us a Cadillac limousine to drive cross-country. <laughs> so we felt that we were stars. And... We drove across the country. I had so much already in the way of collection and vintage clothing that the entire car, like you couldn't see out the windows, it was packed to maybe eight inches short of the ceiling. And I also had a dog who was uh, kind of small. So the dog was wedged in between the ceiling and, you know, the teeny amount of space that was left but we thought we were stars going across country i had two hundred dollars not only to get across country but to get a down payment on an apartment and um we made it and um still you know nothing taking off but i started almost immediately uh trying to get a publishing deal because i heard you could get an advance and where I really, really wanted to be was um, at A&M Records, which was the biggest record company out in L.A. Uh, they had tons of huge acts. They had like uh, Cat Stevens. They had the Carpenters. Uh, well, Herb Alpert owned the label. Um, oh my, LTD, that was like coming up as a big soul group, Jeffrey Osborne. Anyway, that's where I wanted to be, but it was like, if these little companies were turning me down, which they were one by one, I have no shot at the big company. And I went to probably 20 publishers. I had one little reel to reel that I played everyone. Um, and heard the same thing everywhere. These are very distinctive songs. They're very good. They're not what we're looking for. Um, finally, the only one left was A&M. And uh, 
I, I, I had no ambition to stop songwriting, but I knew I was going to starve for a long time. And um, he uh, got president's name was Chuck K. He was like the biggest publisher in the business. And the publishing company was out, uh, actually called Irving Almo, which if you look up that catalog, your hair would fly off if you saw what was in there. So he puts the reel to reel on. First song starts. Uh, he turns it off in the middle. I'm like, okay, I have been here a hundred times before. So I'm standing up and I'm starting to gather my things. And he said to me, where are you going? And I turned around and looked at him. And he had his uh, ha arm outstretched with his hand, grabs my hand, shakes it and says, congratulations, you have a deal. Wow. I thought, I mean, I tear up every single time I tell that story because it was the least likely thing that ever could have happened. So um, my first eight weeks there, I got 11 songs cut, all by big artists, all. And uh, within that time was when one of my girlfriends put me with um, uh, someone in Earth, Wind and Fire. She was like an A&R. And uh, she said, I'm really good friends with Verdine White. Do you like Earth, Wind and Fire? I said, are you kidding? It's like my favorite group. So I started writing with Verdine for a couple acts he was uh, producing. And within two weeks, I got a call from Maurice White, who did not ask me to write a song. He asked me to write uh, an enti the entire next Earth, Wind & Fire album. Oh. With it was, I mean, I can't even tell you. I mean, I was at the point pretty much of eating dog food, which I really did for a while. And... Uh, I get this call. It, it was staggering. So I went and I met him the next day. The group, when I walked in, was working on the hookiest intro I ever heard. I thought, please let this be what he wants me to write because it was there was no way this song wasn't massive. And, uh, you know, it was the intro to September. 
And so uh, we, I started writing that with him within five minutes of meeting him. When you're in the studio and, and you, you hear, you know, the music for September, is this like a, a oh shit moment? Like, oh man. This yeah, is- oh, no, all I heard was the first, I'd say 16 bars. It was, it was oh shit from the minute I opened the outer door of the studio and could hear what they were playing. It was like, oh my God. You know, I, I I could write to this in one second. And again, usually I wrote music and lyrics, but because I had br- been brought in to write with Verdina on just lyrics, at that point for them, again, other than Boogie Wonderland, which I co-wrote with John Lynn, and we both wrote lyrics, both wrote music, um, uh, you know, I, I was just there as a lyricist, which was not particularly interesting to me. But it was if it was Earth, Wind, and Fire, you know. So we worked, me and Maurice worked I four or five months um, because you're working on a trillion songs at once. You know, you're working on the new album and September at the same time. So um, also they were a very philosophical group. Uh, the very first question Maurice asked me was what I knew about Eastern philosophies. I, didn't, I literally did not know what he was talking about. <laughs> you, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm not really into it. It was like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> so um, that began, you know, it went from being completely ecstatic to completely traumatic because he gave me a list of books, spiritual books, and sent me to this, it was the only spiritual bookstore in LA and it's like reeking of incense and all this stuff that used to freak me out. (laughs) So, uh, you know, I got 10 books and from the first page had no idea what any of this was talking about. I thought, oh my God, he wants lyrics that, you know, reflect this philosophy. Not for September though. September was supposed to be purely pop. Um, so I studied those books, absorbed nothing, didn't know what they were talking about, but realized as soon as the records came out and then throughout my life, realized what, um, an incredible thing this was because these philosophies were seeping into me and ultimately they just tell you how to be a good person, you know? that you need to be aware you're, you're part of a whole, anything you do affects the whole, um, uh, you know, it was really a philosophy of how to live a good life. When the album comes out, um, and you know, September's release, which is a classic, like the definition of what classic is a, I mean, timeless record. Uh, what yeah. Was, what was well, it? What was well, it like? Sept- September came out before. It September came out a couple months before the album, with all the rest of them. Uh, you know, it. Uh, first of all, I, you know, usually, I am. I am not one to say, "Oh my God, this song is such a hit." Um, I, uh, you know, I may love parts of it. I don't like other parts of it. I think this is stupid. I think this is brilliant. But it's rare that I just give a blanket statement of this is the greatest thing since light spread. But I felt that way about September. 
And I had been playing it secretly for some of my friends. I would, I had an old fifties car, but I had a great radio and we would drive around in this 1955 DeSoto and I would blast this record. And my friends, all of whom were songwriters, died. Just, it's like, this is going to be the biggest record ever. And at the time, it was huge, but it was not the biggest record ever. It only got to number six, I think. Number eight. I've never had a number one record, ever. I have on other charts, but not on the Billboard pop charts. So it was huge. And I did realize as the years went by that it wasn't going away. I still always heard it on the radio. But something happened about a year ago now, a year, a year and a half ago, that blew it into an entirely different realm. Where, like the classic status you're talking about, I realized oh, it's like White Christmas now. It is never going away. And very specifically this year, I don't know if you know about this or not, but um, on Spotify, the Earth, Wind, and Fire version, the original record, 40 years, because it was released 40 years ago in November, which I can't believe, um, 40 years later, it hopped back onto the Billboard charts. That was this last September, like starting in August. Uh, hopped onto the hip-hop charts and stayed there for something like six weeks and knocked Eminem out of the number one spot on the hip-hop charts. Wow. And Yeah, it was, it was um, Chance the Rapper, Drake, Eminem, Earth, Wind & Fire. And, uh, you know, I've talked to them a lot at Spotify because there's all kinds of crazy things going on with September. And uh, they said they expect that to happen every year from now on. Wow. Then it goes back to, well, it goes to number one. It never went to number one. So I had my first number one on a, you know, a, a seriously significant chart 40 years after the record came out. And how did so, your how did your life change uh, after the the I Am album came out? How did your life change after that? Um, well, I was well on my way. Not not musically. I mean, musically, people knew about me, but um, musically, first of all, you have a you have a big hit. Everyone in the world wants to write with you. So I started getting over a hundred songs cut a year. I was writing with literally everyone on the planet, pretty much. If the record was coming out, I was on it, especially if it was black. But I felt uh, that the quality was going out of it real fast. Um, I started hating writing music almost immediately after having my first hit. Um, people were sending me tracks, assuming that I was just a lyricist. And the tracks, most of the time, and not all the time, but most of the time made me miserable. Because if I had been writing it from the jump, we would have gone somewhere else at bar five. You know, like tracks that people thought were great. I always had a pretty good nose for hits, being able to tell if something was on the mark or not. And I was writing to so many things 
just in order to write with huge artists um, that I, I didn't believe in the songs at all. Um, so I, I was in torture all creatively almost um, immediately upon having a hit. Uh, by the time that I Am album came out, I knew there's, you're not staying a songwriter. I, I am bored out of my mind. Um, cause also I felt like I was writing the same song over and over again. And as much as people would say, we love how different your songs are like Boogie Wonderland at the time was a very different song from other songs. Um, you know, we'll give you all the freedom in the world, just like write us a song. Like, and in that case, you know, I was doing music and lyrics but ultimately, you'd hand them in something that you thought was kind of trend-setting, different from what was out there. But they ultimately, they just wanted another Boogie Wonderland. Of course. Of course. Yeah. So I, throughout the period where I was getting the most songs cut, because there were three or four years of easily getting 100 songs cut a year, um, I, I was absolutely at my most miserable and that ended up being the biggest blessing in disguise because it pushed me into doing other things just to stay sane. Even though I was on every album that came out, but I just didn't think they were good songs. Then I had a hit uh, at two big songs in Beverly Hills Cop, got a Grammy for it. Even though I was having this great career, I was having hits. I was selling a ton of art. I was art directing, production de designing, a ton of like MTV videos. Um, I still felt like unless I financed something myself, and I was always broke because I always financed my own career, um, unless I do it myself where I can't make any money doing it, um, no one knows who I am. So I want to get into, you know, I'll Be There For You by the Rembrandts. Yeah. And well, that that ties into exactly what I just told you. Did you know that you were making a song for just a group? Or did you know that you were making a song for a TV show? Like, uh, no, I, um, I did not want to write songs anymore. It was 1994. I was so deep uh, into the web and technology. Um, I, I did not have interest in creating a linear song anymore. So I was signed to Warner Brothers at the time. I, I told them for a year, I, I want out. And every time I said that, they would say, well, you still owe us four songs. Because if you co-write, it doesn't count as a full song. And I had a quota for the first time. So it finally got down to I owed a seventh of a song. And uh, they said, look, there's a TV show. It airs in a few weeks. We do not think this is going to be a hit. Uh, if you write this, we will, you'll get, that'll fulfill your seventh of a song. And the, one, the main producer of Friends had also been a mentor of mine. So it was someone I knew um, because I had won a big big film award for because uh, uh, I was doing a lot of short films and that's who they put me with. So I had known him for a few years already and uh, Warner Brothers TV, which friends was called up Warner Brothers publishing because they wanted it all to be Warner Brothers. 
And this producer, Kevin Bright, said, we're looking for a uh, quirky yet commercial writer. And anytime anyone said quirky, I would get the gig. So they said, well, how, <laughs> you know, how about Allie Willis? And he went, oh, my God. I mean, I, like, I love her. It was just fate. One of those things. And, and he knew I was trying to get out of my deal. So um, they sent me over the music, uh, the 45-second version, that the track, not the track to the record, but the demo track, that had been done. Uh, so again, I'm only half interested, but it's, it's a way to get out. And um, I wrote the lyric. Uh, we had to go back and forth a lot, you know, with the producers. And because when you write for TV, you have to. But um, uh, wrote the song, got out of my deal, never thought I would hear it again because no one thought the show was a hit. And that show exploded the second it was on the air. And a radio a DJ in um, Nashville got so many requests for what was that song and he had happened to tape the show. So he had the song, he had the 45 second version on tape and he started playing it uh, back to back for 45 minutes. And um, they just got so many requests. It was like, okay, we need to expand it into a record. And um, uh, so the Rembrandts helped on that you know, who cut the song and it became no one involved in that song wanted anything to do with it. I thought it was, <laughs> you know, I thought it was one of the dumbest things I ever wrote. I thought it was the whitest thing. I thought, do not let this be hit, be a hit. It will destroy my earth, wind and fire reputation. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, but it was incredible. Um, it was the number one airplay record of the year. So, for me, it was a way to leave, even though, you know, I eventually come back, but it was a way to leave and it was perceived like I was just tossing out one last hit and then, you know, not a care in the world when in fact I was like crawling out. I so mean, that, that is one home, it's like a walk off home run in baseball. Yeah. Like no, uh, even the Rembrandts, they only got the gig because they were the only Warner Brothers group in LA at the moment who wasn't out on tour. So they didn't want to sing anyone else's, you know, songs. So that, you know, they did it again thinking, okay, this will give us points with the label, but who the fuck cares about this? So none of us wanted to be there. And, you know, for me, it felt like the luckiest moment of my life. You have those moments in your career where, you know, creatively you think you walk into a room and you hear September playing you're like oh shit this is great and then yeah, you have another that, moment of your career yeah no that that never wears off for me never wears off plus you can turn around and say to the waitress or wherever you are i wrote that song and they look at you like you're nuts like when i uh you know i got into the hall of songwriters hall of fame this year and I, I, I was the first one up. I give my little speech. I walk off and I literally bump into these two people. And all I hear is, how, you wrote September. How can you, how does anyone write September? Like it's such a classic song. And I realize it's Usher and Jermaine Dupree. Wow. 
So it's like stuff like that. Um, the especially for that song more than anyone uh, else. Um, I it, it's just the gift that keeps on giving. You know, when you got the job to to write the song for for friends, was there any type of information that you knew about the show going in? Uh, yeah, they sent me the pilot and I'm a, uh, vociferous note taker. So, uh, you know, I was, I'm stopping the videotape every three seconds and writing down. Okay. Uh, Phoebe, uh, spacey, hippie likes candles. Like, you know, uh, Rachel wants to get married, boy, crazy, rich, uh, you know, I, I wrote down everyone's characteristics and um, then because I'm, I think, very much like a rapper in many respects is the way I approach lyrics. It, they just start flowing and I'm trying to rhyme. And I wrote um, for the next week, probably, uh, single space that came out to 25 pages of just alternate verses, alternate choruses, um, took it, sang it to the producers, knew which ones worked, knew which ones didn't. Uh, and then eventually it got whittled down, but you know, my research was the pilot episode. And uh, does that song, was there anything personal lyrically that you, that you brought in maybe about friendships in your own personal life or no, I was really trying to write about those characters. The original lyrics that I wrote were more one line was about Monica, one line was about Ross, one line, you know, I was changing it up. And then I thought, no, you know what? This just has to be when life is falling apart. Um, uh, you, I will be there for you and you will be there for me. No one told you life was gonna be this way Your job's a joke, you broke The love lives the old way It's like you're always stuck in second gear When it hasn't been your day Uh, so it was my same message because most of my songs, if you look at them, start out with life is not working. And then in the chorus, it goes to, OK, what's the resolution? I never wrote one that was just kind of between me and you. I, I would write them more about I have to get myself together. But um, verse wise, it was kind of the same old stuff that I was um writing and then uh, certain lines you just get a gut feeling about um like i, I knew so no one told you life was going to be this way that felt like immediately that is the opening line no matter what um and then i had taken notes because i had talked to kevin bright uh you know the producer who had been my mentor who hired me um and he was just giving me a lot of examples. And at one time, at one point, he said, this is very casually, 
hasn't been your day. It hasn't been your week. Uh, and then he went on to say, you know, you got no job and, you know, you're broke. Your love life's falling apart. So I would write those things down and then try and turn them into lyrics. And then I remember on the third line, your job's a joke, you're broke, your love life's DOA. That I was trying to get three of his thoughts in in one line. And I thought the day and the week thing, I thought that's a little trite, but I need a lot of lyrics in this line. So I, you know, I threw the, hasn't been your day, your week, your month. And I was short and I couldn't figure out what to do. And then I went, duh, year. So um, I was hoping that would stay in there, but I didn't know if it would. So, you know, it's just you kind of stumble on things and sometimes you have gut feelings and uh, sometimes you're just trying to jam in there what you know you need to talk about. Uh, How did the opportunity for you to be in The Color Purple? Uh, One of my best friends brought the rights for it to be a musical. He's the producer to this day, Scott Sanders. Uh, He took me out to dinner in 1998 told me he got the rights. I thought, oh my God, this is my perfect way back into music, black music coming out of the technology. But he didn't ask me to write it. He asked me to advise him on who should write it. And he gave me the name of a couple people. I said, neither one of these are right. And he said, well, it's going to be one of these two. So based on these four things, I tell you, I'm looking for who's the best. So I chose one of them. I told him he wasn't going to be happy, but, uh, you know, that was that. And then a year later, he called me up. He said, you're right. I think, oh, he's going to ask me. And uh, this time, instead of two writers, he said, I'm going to give you the name of 50, five, zero writers. And I'm going to have everyone write a spec song. So I had to approve or disapprove of the 50 writers. And he got to the name Brenda Russell, who was like one of my best friends and actually was on her way over to my house uh, at that time to co-write a score that I for an animated TV series that I had created. And um, I, you know, he said, uh, what about Brenda? I said, Brenda on her own. I think it would be uh, too much work. But together, I think we could kill it. So what if I compete with her? And he said, fine, but no special favors. And I said, you have named 52 writers and my name is not among them. I do not expect a special favor. And then I asked if our third partner that I was writing these scores with, Stephen Bray, he was known more for like a lot of Madonna stuff. Um, uh And Brenda, if you don't know her credits, look her up because you're going to know every song. And um, so he said, fine. So the only advantage we had was that I knew who we were competing against, but they were all incredibly famous. And we, between the three of us, had worked with all of them and we thought they're all too rich and um, they will resent doing a spec song. And so we need to really put time into this because they're going to turn out a song in a day, which is pretty much what they did. And uh, the only assignment was to take the book or the movie, pick a scene 
And if you were to write a song for it, what would the song be? So everyone else chose very easy, like a song you would sing in a juke joint or something. And we picked what we thought was the most complex scene in the book um, that had every main character in it, everything. We wanted to show that we could orchestrate. We wanted to show that we could write for different characters. And, uh, you know, we won. So that was that. Wow. I mean, to be... Yeah. You, the accolades throughout your life of, you know, being a Grammy award-winning, Tony-nominated, Emmy-nominated creative. You know, how does that feel? You know, when you look back at all uh, things... Well, yeah, it's... Um, uh, you, you did miss a couple of them. Webby, you know, for all the digital stuff, Webby Award. Uh, getting into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, which I thought would mean nothing to me, that changed everything. This 2018, for me, was the year that I finally accepted that I was accepted, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it means a lot. And the Color Purple actually last year won both the Tony and the Grammy. Um, uh, because we came back a second time on Broadway. I, I consider that one the real show, not the first one. Um, uh, so it's just, you know, when you think people don't know who you are, or in the case of The Color Purple, I felt like, I mean, yeah, it was a hit, but it wasn't a, a huge hit that, that I felt that people honestly, you know, knew what the musical was. Um, they would discover it differently. And we were blessed to have a, this brilliant British uh, director, John Doyle come in and he threw everything out. He threw out every set, every prop, every costume change, every makeup change. And it was the exact same show, but all it was, was a wooden stage and walls, um, wooden chairs, and then nothing but the song, you know, music, lyrics, characters, dialogue. And that's when people discovered what the show was. So there's something I used to always fear, but always believed it was my fate that no one would really know who I was till I was older. I, I didn't expect to be this old, you know, but... Um, 2018 for me was the year that it kind of broke and 2019 looks unfucking believable like the kind of things coming together that I always wanted to come together what drives you I had the opportunity to meet uh, a very ins inspiring woman by the name of Susan Rogers uh, Susan um, recorded uh, she was Prince's engineer in the 80s so she recorded uh, a lot of Purple Rain a lot of Sign of the Times she was Prince's wow. engineer during his his peak, and we had a great conversation on the podcast about um about what drives you and what drove her to to continue to be great. Um, because I feel like there's some type of there's gasoline in your engine that keeps you going, keeps you creative, and keeps yeah. that fight going. Yeah, what, so, what what drives you? Um, the need to be creative, the need to uh, self expression, um. The need to always be making something 
that makes me happy at the moment and has a chance to change things or affect change things for people or affect them in ways that will improve their life. And if we use September as an example, even though it's just the song, I have never seen that song put on where everyone's toes didn't start, their heads didn't start snapping, they're smiling, they start to laugh, they come onto an empty dance floor. Um, I feel like that song is like medicine. It's a mood enhancer. Um, and so if I can put that vibe out into the world, that's important to me. And if I can have fun putting it out, that's deadly important to me. I, I, I will no longer work on something where, where the struggle is so hard to get it because that vibe comes across in the record. I'll no longer work with artists who don't turn me on. I used to do that 80% of my career, you know, just to get the record. So, but, but on uh, a, but on a, on a deeper level of like what wakes you up in the morning, like there are, there are times where you've achieved success one time. Everyone, every artist, songwriter would die for a September or would die for, you know, the Friends theme song or would die for the color purple. And you could have stopped. You could have stopped and said, you know, I'm I'm incapable of stopping. Why are you incapable of stopping? Uh, Because I, when I get to do it at the level when it's really enjoyable, to me, there's no greater feeling in the world. So, you know, I'm pretty much incapable of taking vacations. I've tried. I last about a half a day. Um, I, I, I live by visual stimulation and sonic stimulation, but mostly visual. So if I, I'm incapable of even looking at a pencil and not thinking that it should be arranged differently on a table. And then if you put it this way, well, then what if you put this thing here and that thing there? All of a sudden you have art as opposed to a pencil, a fork and a glass sitting on a table. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm truly inspired by feeling artistic. What is, what is your life looking like now? And what do you look forward to working on in the future uh, here in 2019? Uh, yeah, 2019, I'm going to work my ass off. Uh, a lot of songwriting lined up. A lot of, I'm working with one artist named Beattie Wolf. She works deep in technology. She's got an album in outer space right now. And we're working on a disco floor that mimics the brain, the brain's response to music. Okay. Uh, So I've got that going on. My absolute favorite, 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 favorite thing that I'm doing is uh, I saw a story on CNN about five years ago. I've been trying to track this being, I don't say human, uh, down for five years. It finally happened last month. Um, there's a ton of press on this, not of, not of my involvement, but um, there is a sea lion uh, up in Santa Cruz uh, that's been proven to be the very first non-human mammal who um, has rhythm. And she will only do it to one song, Boogie Wonderland. Get out. So, yeah. Once, look up uh, 
just write in sea lion, you know, like on YouTube, sea lion tempo transfers. And you'll see a little, a video of five different rhythms, uh, five different tempos of Boogie Wonderland. And you're not going to believe what you're looking at. Yeah, last thing, Color Purple, the musical, uh, is going to be produced as a movie by uh, Steven Spielberg, Oprah Winfrey, Quincy Jones, and um, uh, Scott Sanders, the original producer. Wow. So the, the songs that you wrote will be used in the movie as well? Uh, oh, yeah. The, no, it's a movie of the musical. So it's all 22 songs. Wow. Yeah. Plus, plus we'll write uh, something new. Because that's the only way you can qualify for an Oscar. So, and that is missing from my trove. <laughs> so, we're going to go for it. Wow. Ali, first let me tell you, as a creative, like, I just admire you for being fearless. Like, when I think about this story and when people ask me about this interview, and yeah. you are fearless. You are a fearless creative. You will risk everything Everything. for the greater cause of creativity. No, I will stupidly sometimes, but I wouldn't change it, you know. No, not not stupidly. And I think that's something you're brave. Um, Thank you. And I I admire you. And I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you for being on the podcast. and, And certainly if you're out in L.A., let me know. I definitely will, Allie. That would be great. You're the best. All right. No, I I wrote that song actually from Karate Kid, the original Karate Kid. You wrote the I lo- what? Huh? Yeah, that that it's the song where um, I forget. You know the uh, Ralph Macchio, whoever. Yes, yes, from the Karate um, Kid. Yeah, when he has the big fight and he finally beats the bully, it, you're the best. So. Wow. I love when people I love when people say that to me because they just turn around and go, I wrote that. So you fell right into it. Wow, I, I can almost tear up right now. That's amazing. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much. Bye, Ali. Take care. All right. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of Silent Giants and to our special guest, Ali Willis. This episode was mixed by Mark Bird. Be sure to check out my other show, OPP, Other People's Podcast, which highlights your favorite podcasters and the dope shows they created. I'll have the link for you in the description of this episode. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. Pod bless. Till next time.